Please stand with me, and we're going to read the Word of God from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16 is our passage. Acts 5, 12 through 16. Let us hear now the Word of God. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be seated, and let us now go to our Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you for your great works done in history and in the present day. And we desire to know who you are. We desire to know how great you are. Uh, So we ask that as we study this passage this morning, that you would apply it to our hearts. You would bring this to application to us, that we might be renewed in our minds and strengthened in our wills to do uh, what you will for us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, back in August of this year, I was in Houston, Texas with my wife for my grandfather's funeral, and we were going down the interstate in Houston, and as we passed down the interstate, we saw this giant billboard, it's really big, and it had a black background and emblazoned in massive white letters that were unmistakable to read, it said this, it said, signs and wonders, 10 a.m. every Sunday, And then it had an arrow pointing as to where you should go. Now, naturally, as I was studying this passage about signs and wonders, I I thought of that uh, billboard once again and what was was implied in that and why somebody would choose to uh, set that forth as the key advertisement for coming to their church on a Sunday. And it's a reminder, I think, that the miraculous very much appeals to us in terms of the fact that it it hits our senses. It is tangible. It is sensible. It is something that we can see with our own eyes. And we long to see things. We long to touch things and feel things. It it makes it more real to us. And of course, we are body and soul. We, We do have this physical nature, and that's part of how we relate and communicate and learn about the world around us. And people are naturally drawn to something like signs and wonders, There are people, I think, that are dependent upon a steady stream of miracles and direct messages from God and strange occurrences to bolster their faith in the supernatural, and without it, they don't do very well. And I also thought that I've never seen, though perhaps there is an example in the United States, I've never seen a billboard that says, preaching on faith in Christ and repentance towards God every Sunday, 10 a.m. I never have seen that. Maybe there is an example, perhaps. But what I was thinking about is how much the reality of the supernatural, as well as the tangible supernatural in the context of signs and wonders, is such um, something that attracts so many. 
But then it also occurred to me that we very much want to see, and we pray to see, the amazing supernatural work of God in the church every Sunday, don't we? It's not as if we come thinking uh, with, we ought not to come with merely natural expectations of natural occurrences at church. We pray for the work of God supernaturally in his people every Sunday. And to that degree, we might say, okay, there's signs and wonders. Maybe not in the miraculous sense that they meant. Now, it brings us to this passage, which is a short passage, but it is an important one in Acts because there's many like it in Acts that describe the reality of the miraculous taking place amongst the apostles in their work here in Acts. And I want to ask the question, what is the purpose of these signs and wonders? Why were these given? What was God's intention in what we read here in Acts 5? Well, I'll answer that with a few things. First of all, I believe that the purpose of these signs and wonders is to testify to the presence and the power of God at work. And the signs and wonders were designed to bear witness to the truth of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's so important for us to understand that these miraculous works that took place in Acts were not an end in themselves, but they were rather pointers to what is even more fundamental, which is the saving gospel of Christ, who came to redeem a fallen world and to restore that which is broken. And so we want to look here at these signs and wonders in Acts 5 and go a bit deeper to seek to understand these things. And I'm going to try to answer a few questions today. One is, how should we view miracles in the present day? What should we expect when it comes to the miraculous? How do we express faith in God's power to do the miraculous without assuming God must do the miraculous every time? How do we respond to situations where we pray for the miraculous to occur, but God does not do a miracle? How do we respond to these things? I think these are very practical questions for us. Because any time you or I pray for something, now it may not be that you pray for a miraculous act to occur. It depends on what you're praying for. Uh, you might pray to find your car keys. Uh, and that will require God's providential workings to bring you and your keys back together. God is at work in that. And we should praise God for that, right? But my point is, anytime you pray for something, whether it's something rather seemingly mundane as finding your car keys, or you pray for somebody to be converted from their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ, which is a miracle, either way, it takes faith to believe that God can and that God will do what you ask him to do. Much of God's workings in our world is through what we often call ordinary providence, but I hope by using the word ordinary, that doesn't mean, okay, it's mundane and boring. It's not, right? This is the work of God at all times. We should be amazed and impressed and astounded by, by the works of God, whether they fall into the realm of the miraculous or whether they fall into the realm of the ordinary providences around us. One of my aims in delving into this passage is that we recover a sense of the supernatural. Now, there's much that I could say negatively about the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. There are certainly many negative things that we could perhaps speak about. But I do want to state one positive aspect of what has happened in some Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And what I would say is a positive is the sense that God is real, 
that God is present and that God is powerful and that God hears prayers and does things in response to prayers. I want us to have that sense as well. This is very important for us. And today we are swimming in a culture that has a naturalistic mindset. Everything is physical. Everything is natural to many around us. Now, it's not universally the case. You'll find plenty of people delving into spiritism and occultism and all kinds of crazy things. But there are many who live their lives with a sense that all there really is is the physical stuff of the universe, and we're just part of that physical stuff. And this has affected how people read the Bible, for sure. Uh, You'll find many uh, bad examples of uh, New Testament and Old Testament scholars that have contributed, sadly, to the demise of people's understanding of the supernatural in the Bible. I think, for, for example, of Rudolf Bultmann, the German theologian, and he, he made it his aim as he studied the New Testament to remove all the mythological from the Bible. He wanted to demythologize the Bible. And so he said, if we want to get to the essence and the kernel and the core of what the message of the Bible is and what's really there for us, we're going to have to strip out all of this myth. We're going to have to get rid of it. And, and listen to what he said about about these things. He says, we cannot use electric lights and radios and, in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. That was his conclusion, and many have adopted that same perspective. Now, as I was thinking about this quote, I thought, really, are radios and modern medicine all that impressive? I don't understand why this is such an impressive thing. I'm thinking, I'd much rather uh, look to the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament to shape and inform my understanding, and I want to view the works of man in light of those greater works that God has done. Yes, I'm thankful for modern medicine to the degree that it's been helpful in understanding how God made us. I'm thankful for radios uh, and how we can use those, but let us never lose sight of the greater works of God who can work above natural means. Yes, he made all of these natural laws that are ordinarily in operation in his world, but he can work above all of that at any time he wants. Our God is not limited or inhibited by the physical realm at all. And so I want to inoculate us, to use a modern medical term, I want to inoculate us against unbelieving anti-supernaturalism. I want us to take to heart this passage and to recognize the work of the supernatural work of God in our world. So with that aim, let us look at our passage with verse 12 first. It says, Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. This is one of many occurrences in Acts where the apostles especially are doing these miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. And so this, this begs the question then, well, what is a miracle and how should we think about their operations then and their potential operation now? Now, as I said already, I want us to recognize that God can do anything he wants. I want us to recognize that God does have what we call ordinary providence. That is to say, we have the law of of gravity. Gravity works in a particular way. It is predictable. It is testable. We We can see these things. But God's not limited to that 
particular law. He can do anything. And our, our confession of faith speaks of this in, the, in terms of God's providence. In the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, uh, section 3, it says, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So God does often use means. You're trying to find your car keys, and your wife says, I found your car keys. Well, that was a means by which those car keys returned to you, to use a very simple example. But God does not have to use your wife to help you find the car keys. They could come by some other means to you, or they could be potentially outside of means, I guess. The point being that God can do whatever he wants. Now, kids, this is the first point in your notes. Now, you'll notice there's an important missing word in your notes. So when you see the word do, add the word can next to it. That's a missing word. That's a typo. The, The number one is God can do anything he wants whenever he wants. It's a very simple way, I think, of expressing what our confession of faith says. Now, by miracles, I'm not particularly focusing upon word revelation. I'm not focusing as much on prophecy or tongues at this point, partly because this passage doesn't talk about them either, though later on in Acts I expect that we'll have opportunity to return to that issue in more detail. Suffice it to say for now, I do believe that there is a ceasing of word revelation in the apostolic age, and we can delve more deeply into that. So for for now we're going to uh, focus especially upon these, these healing miracles and the deliverance from the demonic that is the focus of this passage. It's obvious, of course, that what is happening in this passage is not happening by natural means. The apostles are not performing surgeries or giving out medicines, right? Everybody agrees upon that. They are working miraculous healings. These are not natural occurrences. These are examples of God's divine intervention into the ordinary way that that human body would work and to bring instantaneous healing, as we see in many of these healings and acts, and to fix what the effects of sin has broken in the human body, as well as to deliver people from the demonic. Now, something I want to observe about signs and wonders in the New Testament is that we need to recognize that they are especially associated with Jesus and the apostles. By saying they're associated with Jesus and the apostles, I'm not saying that they are automatically limited to Jesus and the apostles, but they are associated with Jesus and the apostles. And the reason, I believe, is that God gave these signs and wonders that we see in Acts to especially authenticate Jesus and the apostles as true messengers of God. One of the ways that we know this is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He says, what are the signs of an apostle? How do you know someone is an apostle? It says, truly the signs of the apostles, apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So Paul tells us here, he says, apostles had signs that accompanied them, and they involved wonders, miraculous acts. This was part of their office. It was part of their gifting as they preached Jesus. They were able to do things like Peter did in Acts 3. He could say to this man who's, who's been lame from birth, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and that man gets up and walks. 
Now, is, that, is it the case that all pastors and elders in the New Testament have this same gift? Is this the signs of a pastor-elder to do miracles? Well, we, we don't find that taught in the New Testament. Uh, notably, when we come to James 5, which deals with the matter of healing, what does it say for us to do? It says, call the elders of the church, have them pray for you, anoint with oil. And it does give confidence that there will be a healing, should it be the will of God. But in James 5, the elders of the church, they don't have the ability to command healing and say, you will be healed. And then a second later, it automatically has to happen. Rather, the elders are to pray to God, asking him to heal. And I think that is a difference. James, 4, James 5, verses 14 through 15, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And certainly this passage gives us confidence in the working of God. It encourages us to say, God works through prayer. And he calls elders to pray for healing, and God will do this work of healing. We know it is not an absolute, based on the rest of the teaching of Scripture, but it nevertheless encourages us to believe in the power of God to heal when we pray. Now, how do we get at what these uh, miracles are and what they are for? Well, I've already said that they authenticate these messengers of the Lord, Jesus and the apostles. But let's think about the language that is used for these acts that take place. Notice that the word miracle is not used in this particular passage. The words that are used are signs, and wonders. What do these words tell us about what is happening here? I think these words are helpful for us. Think about the word sign for a moment. And I want to start with something familiar to get at the meaning of this word sign. Let's say you're traveling through Denver International Airport and you're trying to find a particular way to your gate for the flight that you're going to go on. Imagine for a moment that there is absolutely no signage in the airport at all. No signs to tell you where to go, where a particular terminal is, where the gate is. They're all unnumbered. There's no signs at all. What's going to happen? You're going to be in trouble with finding where you need to go, unless you're very familiar with the airport. And my point in saying that is, what does a sign do? A sign points beyond itself to something else. It helps us get to something else, or know something else, or realize something And I think it's the same with these miraculous events. These signs point beyond themselves to a particular meaning that they intend to communicate. And we know this from a number of places here in the scriptures. They tell us that these signs were designed to point to the truth of Jesus and his apostles and the truth of their message. The point basically is... This is real. Pay attention to the message. And that's what happens in Acts 3. You remember when the lame man is healed? Peter doesn't use that opportunity to do a big healing service at that point, though we do see healing taking place here in Acts 5. Peter rather preaches Jesus. And he says, this man is healed because of the power of Jesus. You need healing through the blood and and death and resurrection of Jesus, and you will be saved. And so that is the focus of what the healing was about. So we see this this purpose of the signs attesting to the work of God. Here's one example, Acts 2, verse 22. This is in Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost. 
And he talks about Jesus here, and he talks about Jesus' miracles. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he says, God attested to the truth of Jesus. You saw it with your own eyes. You saw the miracles. You needed to receive his message, which they didn't. They killed him instead. And then Acts 14, verse 3, this is another helpful uh, explanation of these signs and wonders. Uh, This is speaking of Paul and Barnabas in Iconium in Acts 14, verse 3, and it says this, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So how did God bear witness to the word of his grace? It says he, he allowed, he enabled these signs and wonders to be done by them. So that reminds us then that the sign points us back to the word of God's grace. And that is a very important application that we must draw as we read these passages, is that as we behold the wonders of God, whether they're in the past, like in this passage, or if we behold some amazing work of God or a miraculous act in the present, what does God want us to do? He wants us to remember his word, the truth of his his grace in Christ. That is what it points us back to. So that is the word signs. Now next we see the word wonders. And we can give a very simple definition of the purpose of a wonder. A wonder is something that produces wonder. Seems to go without saying. A wonder is something that produces wonder. It produces a sense of reverence and and awe and amazement. And that's one of the things we find earlier in Acts is that the fear of God descended upon people as they saw his great works. It, It is meant to make us sense that we are in the presence of the divine, that God is at work, that God is present, that he is real, that he is powerful. And so there we find the meaning right in the word itself. Uh, And children, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, miraculous signs point us back to God and his message of salvation. Miraculous wonders should make us feel wonder and amazement. And so I I would give to us at this point, brothers and sisters, an important application. When you see God's work in the world, whether or not it's a miracle, the definition is not as important to me at this point. Miracle, ordinary providence, extraordinary providence. When you see something God does, when you see a, a resurrection of a dead soul who has been granted faith to believe in Jesus, when you've seen a physical healing that did not seem possible or likely, when you see some gracious act of God's provision, when you see an answer to any prayer, do you respond with reverence and awe of God? Do you glorify God for what he has done? What I'm asking us, brothers and sisters, is are we impressed by the works of God? Are we indifferent to them? Do we just not even pay any more attention to what's happening around us? And we, I mean, could it be possible that we see a radical conversion take place and we say something so terrible as, well, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Nothing to see here. God forbid that we should respond to God's works in that way. 
We are called to glorify God for what he has done. We are called to be in awe of God at all times. As we read of his works in the scriptures, or as we behold them with our own eyes in some way or another, we are to glorify God for what he has done. When you have that answer to prayer, oh, we should make such a big deal of it. We should speak of it. We should share it. We should encourage one another with it. May we respond with a sense of wonder. May we be pointed back to what God wants us to realize from his works in the world. So let's continue on through our passage here. We can we, we go to verse 14, and one of the things that we observe in this time of signs and wonders is what God was doing to build the church. That's what verse 14 tells us about. It says in verse 14, Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, we've been working our way through these early chapters, and each of them, well, almost all of them, have given us these updates about how the church is growing rapidly. In Acts chapter 2, we learned 3,000 souls were added to the church. Acts chapter 5, the number was 5,000 added to the church. And now Luke just doesn't stops giving us numbers. I don't know if that means that there's more here than ever, but he says, okay, there's just a multitude. There's an abundance of people being added to the church. Now, one thing that we can say about this massive wave of conversion, men, being, men and women being added to the Lord, is this. It is a supernatural work of God. We can call it a miracle. I don't have any problem with that. To say that when someone who is dead and trespasses and sins is given a new heart, they are raised from the dead. We called Lazarus' resurrection a, a miracle, didn't we? Their, their souls are raised from the dead and they are given new life in Christ. That is a supernatural work of God. And that is a work of God that we pray happens amongst us more and more. It does bring to us, I think, the question of how do miracles play into conversions taking place? Some people think that if we just have an abundance of miraculous testimony and activity, that we'll thereby automatically have a bunch of conversions. That's a belief, I think, that some hold. And there are even these uh, atheists and these agnostics who challenge God. I, I think they sinfully test God, and they'll say things like, if God was to strike lightning next, right next to me right now, I would believe in him. And it's a terrible thing to say, because you're testing God. And no human being has any right to demand of God anything. Uh, the f- famous philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell, he was once asked what he would say to explain his atheism. People said, Mr. Russell, if you go to the judgment seat of God and you find out that God is real, what will you say to him on that day? This is a terrible answer. He says, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. This despite the fact that the evidence for God's existence is all around us. It is revealed in the natural world. It is revealed in the scriptures. It is absolutely uh, impossible to have any other explanation except that God exists, I believe, for a variety of reasons. But the problem here with Bertrand Russell is he's, he's going to demand of God particular evidence. He's going to see something with his eyes. He's going to be able to put it in his, his lab test and see whether it's true according to his standards. Well, Mr. Russell, the standards are not yours to determine. But it reminds us that just seeing something that is miraculous does not automatically produce faith in somebody, somebody else. 
But God did use these things, didn't he? I mean, we see him testifying to the word of his grace. We see that God has a purpose in these signs and wonders. And yes, God did, I believe, strengthen the faith of many. I believe that he did use them as a testimony that would awaken people to a sense of the importance of what was happening, and they would listen to the message, they'd pay attention to the apostles. We need to remember that while these signs and wonders are taking place, the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of people to receive the word. We know that that is an absolute necessity. If someone is going to come to saving faith, the Holy Spirit must open their hearts. And then the miracles can be used as a testimony, as a strengthening of faith. But we know from many examples in the Bible that miracles do not automatically produce faith. Just take, for example, the resurrection of of Lazarus in John 11 and 12. It was known to the Jews in Jerusalem that Lazarus had really died, and it was known to them that Lazarus had been risen from the dead. They knew this. But rather than repenting of their evil treatment of Jesus, they make plans to put Lazarus to death. Bury the evidence. In John 12, verses 9 through 11, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. How how do we make sense of this, this insanity of the mind? I mean, they should just say, Jesus raised somebody from the dead. We should repent and listen to him, right? Well, that's, that's not what happens here. They, they make plans to kill the one that Jesus raised from the dead. That is a hard heart, isn't it? Another important example is found in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the rich man? He dies. He goes to judgment. He speaks to Father Abraham in the parable. He, he asks that Lazarus could be raised from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. He asked that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. And he says, please, raise Lazarus from the dead. Send him to my unrepentant brothers so that they will believe. And and he reasons. He says, surely, if they see a dead man walking again, they must believe, right? That seems to be the reasoning. What does Abraham say in response? Luke 16, verse 29. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And so Abraham says the testimony of the word of God is sufficient. They are condemned in their sin. They are called to repentance. They are called to turn back to God. They need to listen to Moses and the prophets. They need to listen to God through Moses and the prophets. And just sending a, a dead, dead man risen from the dead, that's not going to do a thing. And so miracles then, brothers and sisters, they serve as an additional witness to the truth of God to those whose hearts have been opened to the truth. But for those whose hearts are hard and dead, they will not believe God's word. Miracles are not going to change that on their own. Natural eyes may see miracles and they will be unmoved and explain them away in some other way. They will find some other explanation other than the work of God. But when God grants eyes of faith, and then and only then will these signs and wonders have any impact upon them. And so kids, this is the third point in your notes. Miracles, number three, miracles don't change hearts on their own. 
the Holy Spirit must change the heart for someone to believe God's word. So now we go on here in uh, verses 15 and 16, and I want to look at just the immensity of the power of God that was taking place at this time. In verse 15 it says, They brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now as we read about this, this uh, people bringing uh, the sick so that the shadow of Peter might fall, we might wonder, is this just superstition? I mean, is that really what's taking place? Did God actually heal through Peter's shadow? And while it's true that the passage doesn't specifically tell us whether this was simply their belief or whether uh, the shadow had that effect, we do know that people were being healed. And I would suggest, based on other parts of Acts, that this very well might be the case, that Peter's shadow might be having this healing effect. Uh, For example, in Acts 19, what happens there is the handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul touched were taken across the city and other people touched them and were healed. I mean, that's, that's kind of similar in some ways. It's just, just the handkerchief and the aprons that Paul touched. Just touching them brought about this healing activity. And we also see here the evil spirits leaving people. Uh, God is bringing healing from the uh, affliction of and the, and the possession of the demonic as well. Now, as we look at these amazing works of God in healing and in deliverance, it reminds us that, as I said earlier, these signs are meant to point us back to the very meaning of the gospel itself. What did Jesus come into the world to do? He came to bring healing to a broken and sin-cursed world and deliverance from the power of the evil one. And so these signs of miraculous healing and and deliverance from evil, they are signs that point to the very purpose of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. He came to fix what sin has broken. He came to break the power of the evil one over humanity. And so these miracles, they all point us back to the message of the gospel. Uh, We find this connection drawn so many times in Jesus' miracles. He, He wanted people to understand that though the healing itself was a blessing and a gift of God and a work of God, it pointed to a more fundamental healing. For example, when the, the paralytic man is healed in Mark 2, verse 5, he's lowered down and the, his friends want him to be healed. The very first words Jesus says are, Son, your sins are forgiven. That was more fundamental even than the healing. The healing was a blessing. It was a work of God. But most fundamentally, he needed his sins forgiven because even if his legs were healed, he's going to die from some time thereafter and he's going to face the judgment of God. And then what will... What will he need then? Well, having legs healed will not be sufficient. He needs salvation. He needs deliverance from sin. J.C. Ryle has some wise comments on this in his comments on Luke. And he speaks about the miracles here. I think it's a helpful explanation for us. He says, They, all the miracles, are intended to fasten in our minds the great truth that Christ is the appointed healer of every evil which sin has brought into the world. Christ is the true antidote and remedy for the soul-ruining mischief which Satan has wrought on mankind. Christ is the universal physician to whom all the children of Adam must repair if they would be made whole. In him is life and health and liberty. 
This is the grand doctrine which every miracle of mercy in the gospel is ordained and appointed to teach. Each is plain witness to that mighty fact which lies at the very foundation of the gospel. The ability of Christ to supply to the uttermost every want of human nature is the cornerstone of Christianity. This is what we must see as we behold these healing miracles in the scriptures or when we perhaps see them with our own eyes. We need to recognize that we are pointed back to the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, an important practical question for us is this. Does God still work miracles today? And is it appropriate for us to pray for them? Well, I'll just simply say yes and yes. While we should recognize the unique purpose that miracles had in the apostolic period... There is also much testimony in church history that especially when the gospel advanced into new regions of the world, there was often some degree of the miraculous reported, things that were beyond natural explanation. It is true that the pattern of biblical history is that when word revelation is given, God often accompanies that word revelation with an additional signs and wonders and miracles that accompany it. That is a pattern that we see in Scripture. And that reminds us that it, it, doesn't have to, it ought not to be our expectation that the miraculous is the constant experience of the church of Christ, as in, we need to see this level of activity every Sunday. That's described in Acts 5. And as we read church history, we might read of miraculous events and wonder, did somebody embellish these? Is there anything that's you know, false about some of these accounts? And my guess is there probably is some embellishment, but I also have no reason to doubt that God is at work in amazing and supernatural ways in history to do things above the natural realm. You can read so many testimonies from the present day even, especially in China, Africa, and the Middle East, of miraculous events and occurrences of how God brought his gospel to people that otherwise would have very little access to it, or poured out his spirit in great measure to enable people to stand fast for him. Uh, we can read of people being delivered from jails. There's this, uh, you know, through, through, in a m- amazing, miraculous ways, just as we read in Acts as well. So on the one hand, we need to avoid any emphasis upon miracles that makes our faith dependent upon their presence. It is not healthy for us to be constantly waiting for something that we can see and touch and disbelieve God's word or be doubting God's word along the way. It's not healthy for us. The miraculous is by definition unordinary and unusual. It's not God's ordinary providence. Otherwise, they wouldn't be exactly uh, special in that regard if we saw them all the time. And whenever we pray for miracles, we need to always submit ourselves to the will of God. What we believe about God's power and what we pray for, these are major tests of our faith. Do we pray for God to do great things? I hope we do, right? We better be praying for God to do great things. After all, our basic mission in the church is to see the nations discipled in the commands of Christ. That is an absolutely impossible mission for us to do apart from the work of God. It requires the supernatural work of God to raise dead sinners to life. We cannot do this work without God's power. We are praying for God to do great things. And so we should adopt William Carey's courageous faith as a missionary. He said, expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. That was his his motto. It was a good operating principle and, and a mindset, a faith mindset for us. But what if we don't seem to see great things from God for a season or for a long season? 
What if the things that we most long for and the things that we most earnestly prayed for, they did not happen? What then? Well, and this is no abstract question for us, brothers and sisters, because as a church over the last few months, you, you know that we prayed for the healing of our brother Ryan uh, strenuously and steadfastly. We, we came together, we fasted, and we prayed, didn't we? We were very desirous that God would do a healing work. And, and it became increasingly evident to us that if Ryan was to be healed, it would be probably not just by ordinary medical means, but by the supernatural work of God. And I trust that we in faith, we expect that God can and does do great things. But it is a test of our faith both to expect great things from God and then to submit to God in how he directs what happens. It is not always God's will to heal. Take, for example, the challenge the Apostle Paul faced himself in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember that this is the same Paul whose handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him went and healed everybody they touched. Okay, this is the same Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 faced some kind of challenge. It seems like a physical challenge. Calls it a thorn in the flesh. And he asked God to remove it. We might say, Paul, just command it to be gone, Paul. You're an apostle. He couldn't do that. He didn't do that. He had to ask God to remove it. And God said no. At least for the present time. We don't know if it ever got removed. God said no to Paul. And God said, I have a better plan than healing your thorn in the flesh. I will show my strength perfected in your weakness. I will show how great I am by my work in you, not through healing, but through not being healed here. It is not always God's will that healing occur. And so it was for Paul, Paul the miracle worker, Paul the wonder worker, Paul himself was not healed of this. And there are times where we wonder, why would God allow this to happen? Why would he so ordain this to happen? Why would somebody not be healed? Why would somebody go to be with the Lord? We wonder these questions, and we don't always have the answers. I mean, another example, perhaps, is uh, Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. Stephen is a miracle worker as he preaches the gospel of Christ. He was doing amazing signs and wonders. And as far as we know, he's not an apostle. But Stephen was put to death. Why didn't God miraculously prevent Stephen's death at the hands of the persecuting Jews? We might have thought, God, why would you not have Stephen just do miracles from city to city to city? Just This would be great. Let's have Stephen just do 30 years of this all over the Mediterranean world. It will be great for the growth of the church. Why not? God had him killed pretty much when he started his ministry publicly. Why? God advanced his saving purpose in the world apart from Stephen doing more miracles. It was the sovereign determination of God that Stephen, who was a miracle worker, would die for Christ. Why? Why why did God do this? Well, what we learn, actually, is that the persecution against Stephen and the other Christians in Jerusalem actually forced the Christians to scatter everywhere and preach the word. It was actually how God said... You're going to get out of Jerusalem. I have other work for you to do. And God advanced his gospel purposes even through that. And in fact, as we know, as Tertullian so wisely said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God has his purposes in such things. 
And so, yes, God can advance his saving purposes in the world through signs and wonders. He can do supernatural things. He can do amazing things. But then our faith is also tested when we pray for such things to happen and God does not answer our prayers in the way that we asked for. Understanding this is so important for us because there is a false teaching circulating that says it is always God's will to heal. And they would tell you that if you did not experience that healing that you yourself prayed for for yourself or for others, you simply did not have enough faith. This is propagated in the Word of Faith movement. And and imagine the, perhaps you don't have to imagine if you've seen the kind of discouragement that results from this teaching. Immense difficulty and discouragement and wrong thinking that results from this. Something happens and and people that you've prayed and, and, and fasted for and you trusted God for the outcome, somebody comes along and says, well, it's your fault You didn't believe enough, and that's why it turned out this way. Now, tell tell this to Paul. Tell this to the Apostle Paul, who has a thorn in his flesh, and say, Paul, your faith is just not strong enough. You just didn't have enough faith in God. If you had stronger faith, the thorn thorn in the flesh would be removed. That's the wrong conclusion. We, we, We could say, yes, Paul, you need to grow in faith as we all do, right? But that doesn't mean the thorn in the flesh is going to be removed automatically. The Lord did not say to Paul, if you have enough faith, I'll remove the thorn. He didn't say that. He says, no, my strength is perfected in your weakness. I have a better plan for however long this affliction lasts. The Lord is telling him, I'm going to grow you in humility. I'm going to grow you in faith. I'm going to show my strength rather than your strength. And so as we think about the miraculous, as we think about signs and wonders, as we think about the power of God to to heal or, or perhaps do other things, As I said before, it is good for us to expect God to do great things. But it is also good for us to not be dependent upon the sensible and the physical. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is not good to be in the position of Thomas that says, I got to see it with my own eyes. Seeing is believing. No, Jesus says, you need to believe without seeing. It is healthy for our faith to maintain this perspective that we be firm believers in the unlimited power of God who can do far above all that we ask or think. And then also, it is good for us to rest in the, in the good and the sovereign will of God. So we've learned much about the ways of our God in this and, and in many other passages like it today. And so what should we do with this passage? What do we come away with today? Well, there's one thing I can confidently say. Our faith is at present too weak and our conception of God is too small. What I mean is, in our our present imperfected state, we do not adequately appreciate how powerful God is. And sometimes our prayers are a reflection of of that. I can confidently say of myself and, and of us as a whole that we need to grow in the Christian life and we need to grow in faith in God. And I don't mean by this that the more faith we have, we'll automatically see an exact uh, number of uh, miraculous events that follow that. But we will expect God to do great things. We will pray with more faith and more zeal. We will be more sensitive to the answers to prayer that God brings. And we will have a sense of excitement about what God is going to do next. And as we see the miracle of the new birth taking place, which is a miracle we frequently pray for, we will 
praise God as we see his wonderful works displayed. And this is what we need to rejoice in every single day. And the only right response to seeing the wonderful works of God is to praise him for what he has done. And so may we have that spiritual sensitivity, may we have that sense of the greatness and the power of God, and then we wait for him to work his great wonders amongst us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your great power. Uh, We acknowledge that all that you do is great and wondrous, it brings you glory, And we desire, Lord, to know your great works. We desire uh, to see your glory. But we pray, first of all, that you would give us the eyes of faith. That we might, first of all, behold your glory in your word. uh, That as we see your works in the world, that we would recognize them and we would give you praise. I pray that you would grow us in faith. That we would know that your will is the very best will. And whatever we pray for, we wait upon you to do uh, that which you intend. For you are the one who is sovereign and good and merciful. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.